And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait to get my first guest on the line. Whenever I want my ratings to spike and my popularity to soar, I simply invite Stephen Mansfield onto the show. He's going to be my first guest. He's coming up in just a couple of minutes. I'm awfully excited to invite him as well as uh, David Wheaton's coming on the show as well today too. Uh, Nina Ressner, um, and uh, Mark Rutland. That's the lineup for today. Tell me that's not an all-star lineup. I'm sorry, it is. It's going to be a great show. And you know that I love Scripture, and most often I just read a verse myself, get things started, but I always want to invite listeners to just help me and and then call and leave your verse or a favorite verse of yours on the voicemail. It's really easy. You call the number 877-933-2484 and you get right into the voicemail and all you say is, eh, I want to leave a, a scripture verse for Bill's show. And then just all you have to do is say it and then boom, there it is. Just like Al did today from New Brighton. So we're going to um, hear Al's verse and then we're going to go to break and then we're going to come back with Stephen Mansfield. Scripture for uh, Bill Arnold's show. Then, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And that's uh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. And Stephen Manfield is a New York Times best-selling author, written many books, The Faith of George W. Bush, The Faith of Barack Obama, Lincoln's Battle with God. He is a historian, a biographer. He is also the founder of the Mansfield Group, very much in-demand speaker and consultant. He lives in Nashville. He also has a place in D.C. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back with you. Thank you. I just love when you come on. I promise. My, uh, my ratings soar. That's because I'll say a lot of crazy and controversial <laughs> things. <laughs> you probably do. And I love your I love the book Ask the Question Why We Must Demand Religious Clarity from Our Presidential Candidates. How timely. Thank you for writing this. Oh, thank you. It's it's a privilege. Yeah. Uh, let's start by just chatting a little bit about some of the the truths about religion in America right now. Well, it's pretty stunning, isn't it? I mean, uh, we're supposed to be living in a secular society. That's what many of our professors told us. And yet religion is more uh, infused into our politics, well, as infused into our politics as ever. And then uh, as well as the fact that our international affairs are very much faith-based or infused with faith as well. So all of that to say that uh, we're living at a time when we have a conservative president backed by evangelicals. We've got a religious left continuing to rise, as we see in the Democratic slate of candidates. And uh, it's very, very contentious. And, of course, of course as I say, our foreign policy is, requires a knowledge of religion that perhaps we've never had to have before. So it's all very interesting, a little bit exciting, and a little bit daunting. Mm-hmm. You say in your book, a faith is not just a gaggle of individual beliefs. It's a lens through which we view reality. Um, Yeah. So please say more about that. Sure. You know, the way I have said it in some other books is if a candidate's faith is sincere, 
uh, if it's something they really believe. In fact, if any person's uh, religion is actually is, is really sincere, if they're honest with it, uh, then it's the way they view the world. It's the way they're going to interpret everything from morality to daily reality to uh, policy, government, education, everything. Everything they're going to see everything through that lens. And so to understand, when we're, if we're talking about politics for a moment, to understand a politician's faith is essential uh, if they're sincere about it because it's going to shape everything they do in office. But, of course, even just in terms of understanding the world, if people are sincere about their faith, uh, if it's not just window dressing, then that's really the, the primary key to understanding who they are. And so it's one of the reasons that I'm a real advocate for better education about religion in American schools, because we're going to live in an increasingly religious world for a while, as much as the West considers itself to be secular. Mm -hmm. Stephen, what do you think about candidates that sort of cherry pick verses and take them out of context? Well, that's why I wrote the book, because I'd like to see us uh, challenge that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in American politics, we have allowed candidates to get by with, uh, you know, some sentimental stuff about Bibles and mom and, uh, you know, what, what our pastor told us maybe when we were in third grade and God bless America, but we haven't really drilled down or forced them to drill down into what they really believe and what value system they're going to carry into office. I'm not saying we should oppose religion. I'm simply saying we should understand it before the candidate gets into office. We've had some interesting surprises in the White House. So it's time for us to um, to not allow them to cherry-pick verses and not allow them just to give us some religious mush and uh, for all of us to be satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. I remember when uh, Barack Obama was saying something about um, some verse in Scripture, and he referred to it as, some obscure verse in Romans, as if it's, you know, doesn't count, it doesn't matter. Um, and I thought there was that general disregard for Scripture that was kind of harsh to hear. And then when I remember when he was being interviewed by Rick Warren at Saddleback, and, you know, he said, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, and there wasn't any part of me that believed him. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, Barack Obama, I think, was on the one hand more open about his faith than almost anyone else, any other candidate of maybe my lifetime. At the same time, there was a certain amount of, I I, want to call it duplicity, a certain amount of uh, dancing, maybe. Uh, As you say, he definitely hid um, what became his genuine agenda regarding LGBTQ issues. Uh, This is the president who ended up supporting Obergefell v. Hodges, the Supreme Court ruling that legalized gay marriage. This is the president who ended up lighting up the White House and the colors of the, you know, basically gay nation. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, the, 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 most of that was hidden early on. At the same time, though, I can, I can put people on the phone with you here who, I'm in D.C. right now, who worked for him and said he used to give talks about the resurrection of Jesus every Easter to his White House staff that would bring tears from people's oh, eyes. Oh, wow. So he was confusing. He was uh, <laughs> difficult to understand in any, from any traditional perspective, and yet I think there was also a little bit of duplicity in the way he hid some of the things he genuinely believed when he was a candidate. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a quote from Gandhi that says, those who say religion has nothing to do with politics do not know what religion is. Exactly. Uh, religion, true religion, is a comprehensive world and life view. It is, it is, it's eternal, it's spiritual, but it has practical implications, and it will, it will affect daily life. It will land on the ground and have an impact, and so that's why we need to understand what people believe. I, I, I think we're, we Americans need to stop fooling ourselves. We do not live in a secular society. Um, religion is not simply window dressing that has no impact. Uh, it's going to have an impact, and we should understand it before we vote for a person. Mm-hmm. When the, the stats are, um, Stephen, that 92% of Americans believe in God and 70% of all Americans are Christians of some kind, that's, that deck is pretty stacked. 
It is. It is. Now, of course, you know, the, the, that those those numbers are fraying a bit of with uh, people who are the quote unquote nuns and ONES who, right. who still would say, yes, I believe in God. And yes, I'm even an, uh, loosely traditional. I just don't go to any institution of faith. So those numbers are, are soft a little bit. But but absolutely, the majority of Amer- vast majority of Americans believe in God and the vast majority of Americans are uh, Christian in some form. So that that shapes where we are. The problem is um, let me let me just go ahead and hit hard. I mean, if I say I'm a Methodist, what do you really know about me? Uh, because I can be flaming left wing and be a Methodist, or mm-hmm. I can be a conservative, charismatic, Pentecostal type of Methodist. Right. So we've got to ask questions. If a guy just says he's Presbyterian, if a guy says he's Catholic, these days, if a politician says he's Roman Catholic, you don't even know if he's pro or anti-abortion because right. it's you have the whole spectrum. So in a sense, in our postmodern generation, where people are curating faith rather than just taking the faith received from their fathers and grandfathers, we've got to ask some questions. What does that mean? You know, Joe Biden just launched his campaign not too long ago. Within 48 hours of announcing his campaign, he reversed himself on a major policy regarding abortion that he had defended with his faith for decades. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, take that as legitimate or don't. I, I of course, am pro-life, so I don't. But but my point is we should be asking a question because he might very well have got returned to office or might might still. Uh, us not knowing what he really intended regarding abortion, though he had said the opposite for decades. Yeah, when you look at some of the high-profile Catholics like Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, and they seem to parse it between what their public policy is and what their private position is. Yeah, and their own church doesn't allow that. You know, there are always right. bishops and archbishops in the Roman Catholic Church saying, deny these people access to the Eucharist. Right. And so... This is part of the reason. We can't just because they kneel in church, just because they're, you know, accepted members of a given church. I'm not putting any of the churches down. I'm just saying uh, we no longer know what a candidate believes because they use the labels. It hardly means anything anymore, unless maybe they say they're Southern Baptist. We have a pretty good sense of that. Maybe Assembly of God, maybe Pentecostal, um, maybe Evangelical. But for the most part, using the historic Christian denominational names, we don't know any specifics. We've got to ask the question. Mm -hmm. You know, Stephen, the device I am most suspicious of nowadays is the word evolve. <laughs> can, that means you, I, don't have to, I don't have to be faithful to anything. I don't right. have to be consistent with anything. You can say what you need to say to get a vote, and then after you get elected, you can evolve. Yeah, here's what I'm going to do. My wife is in the next room, so I'm going to walk in there and say, honey, I love you, but I've evolved. <laughs> what does that mean? You'll see me with your well, black eyes the yeah, next day. Yeah, and you're going to be sleeping on the couch and very That's hungry. exactly right. Yeah. All right, Stephen, let me take a little break. When I come back, lots more with Stephen Mansfield, uh, New York best, New York Times bestselling author. Be back in a minute. the show. I've got Stephen Mansfield on our studio line, the New York Times bestselling author, popular speaker. And uh, we're chatting about a book called Ask the Question, Why We Must Demand Religious Clarity from Our Presidential Candidates. So, Stephen, as you look over some of the candidates, uh, what are you thinking? Well, it's a very strange scene, isn't it? We've got yeah. as the champion of the right and the evangelicals, Donald Trump, who himself admits that he's had an immoral past and mm-hmm. probably doesn't deserve evangelical support. And yet, some of those evangelical leaders have been unbelievably outspoken. And on the left, you have a, a new surge of people claiming faith bases, feeling like even this far out in the campaign, they've got to explain their faith. 
and yet it's a it's it's as we were just discussing a faith that they claim at a personal level but is quite distant from the institutions they want to align themselves with again i'm a baptist i'm a roman catholic i'm a presbyterian i'm mm-hmm. a methodist uh but they've drained those words of content so yes i lean right, right i'm certainly right of center in my politics so some people can take this as having some bias but i challenge them to think about the democrat candidates and to think in terms of you know what what exactly do they believe it uh, i'm not trying to question anyone's personal affiliation or loyalty to God, but in terms of their theological positions and what that's going to mean in public policy, try to find some firm place. It's a little bit difficult to do right now. Yeah. Um, And then when I look at some of the candidates on the left campaigning right now, this uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's, uh, you know, in, in a gay marriage, and then he quotes scripture more than I think any of the candidates right now. Yeah. That's absolutely right, and this is this is where we're going to need some discernment. This is where we're going to have to ask some questions. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's an interesting and uh, well, some people are going to say dangerous. Some people are going to say fascinating character. Uh, he is gay. He's in a gay marriage. He claims to be a Christian. He goes to church, and yet, and he and he also seems to have a tremendous command of of scripture. And yet, he's obviously committed to a lifestyle that any plain text reading of the New Testament, uh, the either Testament, um, we would certainly say he's con- he's living a lifestyle contrary to that. So this is where we have to have some discernment. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all the, all the uh, candidates on that side are pro-abortion, when, again, most of us uh, on the right would certainly say that that's a contrary to, to Scripture. I could go on and on and on. So it's a, it's a matter of not allowing the labels to go by, not saying, hey, this guy's a Christian. That's great just because he says he is. Ask the question, what do you believe? Why do you believe? How do you sidestep? Um, those places in Scripture that condemn the very lifestyle you're leading. And by the way, you only that obligation, not just because we're walking the streets together as American citizens, but because you're asking for my vote. Yeah. Stephen, how did you process the um, Mitt Romney situation with him being a Mormon? Well, you know, a, a Mormon, obviously, uh, Mormonism is an unusual religion. I say that with kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's considered by many people to be a cult. But I actually advised people in his campaign to have him out with his Mormonism. Um, the, the fact is that Mormonism, even even though I, I disagree with it, and I've made that clear in a number of books, um, nevertheless, a Mormon can be a, 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 not only a committed American, but a, but a very, very uh, civic-minded, uh, moral, ethical person serving in public life. Many people here in D.C. and the CIA, the FBI, um, in many branches of government are Mormons, and they're there precisely because of their faith, and they're very, very um, loyal. Americans and very devoted public service servants. Mm-hmm. So I actually urged the Romney campaign to out with it. Uh, every time his faith was brought up in an interview, he got angry and resented the questions. But of course it was going to be asked. And as you know, in the book that we're talking about, I have a chapter called The Three Words, because he only mentioned his Mormonism in any public way in his inaugural, in his, uh, not inaugural, but his acceptance speech at the convention, when he said, we were Mormon. That's all he said. That's all he ever said. And he resented every other question about his Mormonism during his entire campaign. So I think statistically we know that this really hurt him in his presidential run. He needed to out with it. He needed to, you know, the, the, the rule of thumb here in D.C. is get there firstest with the mostest when it comes to any kind of crisis or challenge <laughs> to your to your faith, mm-hmm. uh, or certainly, certainly your faith or any other matter. And he just wouldn't do it. And when he finally did speak to it, he actually raised more questions than he answered. So um, I like him personally. He's a little bit softer and gentler than I, you know, think we're going to have to have in our politics today, but he definitely blew the faith factor in his campaign. Mm-hmm. How would a candidate like uh, Bernie Sanders do? I think he's a he's a cultural Jew, but he's like, I don't believe really in anything. 
Um, yeah. That's from sort of what I've heard from him. How how would he fare uh, as a, con- a top contender? Well, I think I think his faith is not going to be a negative in this sense. At least he's being honest and consistent. This is yeah, what true. the American people really resent. Uh, what they really resent is somebody who's being duplicitous, somebody who's hiding what they believe, somebody who's seeming to be hypocritical. Bernie just says, look, I was raised Jewish, and I'm not much of one now, and I don't go in for all this divine stuff in politics, and so listen to my ideas. And um, he even said one time, believe I'm going to hell if you want to. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, which is a strong statement, but Very my sad. point is at least Americans go, well, okay, at least the guy is being consistent. He's not trying to hide anything. He's not suddenly showing up in church trying to act like, you know, he's been a faithful believer for 50 years when everybody knows otherwise. So I think that gains him points with those who lean his way already. It's not going to convince anybody on the other side, but at least it's got a little bit of integrity to it. Yeah. Stephen, I'd love to maybe get some examples of how to respectfully and fairly ask about a candidate's faith. Yeah. What, what, what you ask, what you do is you say, what are the implications of your faith for this particular area of politics? Uh, sir, ma'am, would you please tell me uh, any principle of your faith that affects what's going on right now on the, on the southern border with immigration? Mm. Um, would, you, would you draw a line for me? This is a, quite a, the way I often frame the question. Would you draw a, line, draw a line for me from what you believe, what your faith is, what you've just told us, to the issue of abortion today? or the issue of gay marriage today, uh, or religious liberty today, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the, whatever the current issue is. Just ask for a line. And what, the reason I use that uh, phrasing, I, would you please draw a line, is I'm wanting them to make a connection. I don't just want them to take off in a lot of pious mush and uh, wrap a lot of politics right or left uh, in some kind of you know religious veneer. I want to know what's the theological path from what you believe to your conclusions about this particular area of public policy. And when I've asked it that way, I've gotten very very good answers. Mm-hmm. What about if you're in, if you want to talk to a candidate about uh, the parts of the Bible that they don't want to talk about? Well, I mean, that's you're only going to be able to force them so far. Oh, of course. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to be able to make them talk about what they want to talk about. But I, but I do think that when, for example, Buttigieg, uh, Judge, if I'm saying that correctly, I always mess it up. Um, I think that he might, he may not want to talk about Romans too. You yeah, know, he may not no, want I'm to sure talk about. Uh, now, 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 Barack Obama jumped right in. He did it insultingly. Uh, you know, he 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 is doing that. Um, you know, higher criticism approach of choosing some scriptures over others, dismissing some that that kind of thing, looking at the number of words with which something is said and judging them that way. Um, and, but at least he treated it. At least he put it down in black and white. At least he put it in print. And and so there's some commendation for him in that. Um, but I think. What we, what we have to do is keep asking the question. I also strongly recommend to my tribe, people who are a bit on the right, people who are faith-based, to ask with kindness. Don't prosecute. Sir, ma'am, be respectful. Help, please, would you mind helping me understand what is the connection between Romans chapter 2 and the lifestyle you're living, sir? You know, that kind of thing. Or your view on LGBTQ or, uh, you know, the ruling of the court made last week, that kind of thing. Be kind, be gentle, and draw them out. And, and I think that many of them now know that they're not going to get very far unless they articulate more clearly what they believe, and they may respond very well. Some of them just won't respond at all. Mm-hmm. Do you think the evangelicals are going to come out in big numbers for this election? I do. I, I do. Now, the, the part of the problem is there's been a serious fraying in the evangelical community, and the young are not interested in Donald Trump. This, the polls are showing that. There's been dramatic loss there. So uh, many of the evangelical leaders know this. They're going to be really putting emphasis on this election. Um, right now, there's no question that Trump has lost votes in the evangelical community um, since the last election. 
Um, it just depends on how he conducts himself as to whether he can regain that ground. But there's been serious, serious fraying of the what was once a monolithic evangelical vote, um, especially with the young. And I think we're going to see that impacting this election. Yeah, Stephen, we could all use a little seminar from you as to you know how to ask the right questions just so we can get the honest answers because we don't want to feel frustrated and we want to ask the right questions to put the candidate in a position where they're either going to answer honestly or they're going to weasel. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with your, your I'd say two things, your tone, your manner. Yes. Are, are you accusing? Are you prosecuting? Are you really telling me? You know, that kind of approach <laughs> is not going to yeah. win you anybody. I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't win anything if you were talking to me that way, and I'm on your side, you know. So my point is uh, just there are the, the basic manners of talking to anybody apply when you're talking to politicians. Yeah. But then know your stuff. Know what they believe. And don't be trying to trap them, but be ask ask them to make the connections. I think I think quite frankly, we've moved beyond any candidate believing they can just sidestep religion as people have in the past. Yeah. And I th- I think in this election particularly, there are some serious questions that need to be asked. Yeah. And um, and, and they, they're going to have to be, especially of some of the front runners. Stephen, we just have a minute left. Is it safe to say that the media on the both left and the right side have gotten religion wrong? Yeah, there's just no question. They tend, uh, I'd have to say that the right is a little bit more sympathetic about religion in general, especially conservative religion, because many of them now um, hold uh, some religious views. That didn't used to be the case. Uh, On the left, they've begun to be um, supporters of the religious left, of the rise of the religious left, of religious liberalism. So you have a little bit less of the press treating faith like they used to, where it was like a wart on a candidate's nose. Look at this oddity. This guy goes to a Methodist <laughs> church. Look at this weirdness. This guy's in church on Sunday morning and mm-hmm. carries a Bible, uh, that kind of thing. Instead, I think they've warmed a little bit. They've also become more partisan. That's made them open up to it, but they still get it wrong a lot. Yeah. Stephen, thanks for spiking my ratings once again. You're the best. <laughs> Great to be with you as thanks always. Thanks so much. Thanks. Stephen Mansfield has been my guest. His book is called Ask the Question, Why We Must Demand Religious Clarity from Our Presidential Candidates. You can get that book or Google his name and look at all the other books he's written. You'll be glad you have one. We'll take a short break, and then when we come back, Nina Ressner. mercy. You know, there's some uh, relationships, some marriages that need God's mercy. You know, a long and happy marriage, sometimes it sounds like the end of a fairy tale, doesn't it? An illusion that modern times have exposed. And Nina Rosner is my guest. She's written a book called The Respect Air, 40 Days to a Deeper Connection with God and Your Husband. Hello. Hey, it's good to be here. Nina, how are you? I am doing well. Good. Thanks. I'm well. Thanks for doing the show. Um, you bet. Yeah, this is a, a, a it's a, it's a big topic we're on. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, not a small one. No, and the marriages are in, in a lot of marriages are in trouble today. Yeah, it's a hot mess, and you would think that people of faith would have something that looked a little different, but unfortunately, that's not the case overall. Yeah, let's talk about the respect aspect, the the importance of respect. In relationships, and, you know, we can talk about marriage and friendship, and just go from there. Yeah. So one of the things that research shows, and I'm a full believer that um, finally science will catch up and go, "Oh, Bible, guess that's true." 
you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> we already know what's true. Um, but research shows that if you don't respect yourself, then your respect that you have for someone else really doesn't matter. And so in the Bible, it talks about how we need to have our yes be yes and our no be no. And one of the things I see women struggle with, and I think men do too, um, but in terms of, you know, the books written for wives. So, you know, we need to um, understand who we are, where our identity comes from, and it's not from people-pleasing, and then how to respect ourselves so that we're rested, we're engaging in things that fill us up and um, fulfill the identity that God created us in. And then we have respect that means something to somebody else. And it's not, you know, you look at marriage and you go, well, what do you mean? Ephesians says I'm supposed to respect my husband, you know, and the hair on the back of your neck stands up if you're a woman. And that's the first time you've heard it, at least. That was my experience and a number of my friends and um, people I work with in ministry, they say that. And it's because our culture says respect is to be earned. But God's word is a little different than that and says give it away unconditionally, which is, you know, the question really is, do we, are we respectful people? And I think the answer to that should be yes. So do you think respect is a virtue that is absent today, more so? Oh, golly, yes. I guess, I guess the answer is yes to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, turn on the news and, you know, you look at what our leaders are doing and, and the communication behaviors between anybody on social media. It's just, it's so sad. We've lost the awareness of the preciousness of humanity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Nina, let's talk about the women's identity, because I think you just had mentioned that earlier. And I want to go back to that, because it seems that if there is trouble in that department, there's going to be trouble in the marriage. Yeah, and, it, and it's not something that just women suffer from, but um, our ministry works primarily with them, so I'm going to speak to right. that. Um you know, it's a confusing culture to live in. Um, a lot of us have um, survived the um, set your bra on fire stages of the 60s, you know, and stand up and demand your rights and all of that. And then you have uh, social media, which is saying, okay, have this perfect Pinterest house and your perfect Pinterest kids. Mm-hmm. And the perfect Pinterest meal, and here, and then you go on Facebook or Instagram, and here's all the photos that everybody's vacation looks, you know, and you didn't go anywhere, but you know, to Toledo or something to see mm-hmm. your grandparents, you know. So, so there's all this comparison, and there's a lot of pressure and a lot of mixed messages, and honestly, women are and men are very confused about what is our role, what are we supposed to do. And because of that, and we're looking externally for that answer, then that confusion then ends up in all this stupid striving that really gets us nowhere. And those things should be navigated between the two people that are married in terms of what works best for your marriage, because yours is different than the person sitting, you know, the couple sitting next to you. You know, he may be good at math and do the bills in that couple, and she may be the one that's an accountant or does math well, you know. So you you have to figure those things out for yourselves and not let the pressure and um, social um, approval be the thing that guides you, but rather, you know, what the two of you and what God wants for your marriage. Mm-hmm. So, Nina, if you're going to try to love the man you have versus the man you don't have, 
Yeah. Is it important as to how you talk about your husband with your girlfriends or your sister or your mom? Yes. Uh, whatever you pay attention to grows. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, and, and there's research on complaining. So it's really good to, from the first you know, onset of a hurt or something to articulate that. And you can do that in journaling. You can take that to God. You could even say to your husband, hey, this happened and it made me feel da-da-da. And then he's got an opportunity to go, oh, I didn't mean to do that or, you know, whatever. Um, but to con- complain aloud to others after that first act, the research shows that that is really bad for your brain. It creates negative pathways that then um, re activate when something else negative happens and then suddenly you've got a negative filter through which you're seeing everything that your spouse does and the problem with that is that you're you're completely missing the good as well Um, and and that is still there but we literally become blind to it because we've chosen to complain about these people we Mm -hmm. married and it's disrespectful behavior to them and to the marriage and to God, because he tells us not to gossip. It's yeah. just not helpful. Yeah, so Nina, are, do you think women um, are good listeners and they're, and they're understanding what their husbands are trying to say? <laughs> I don't know anybody that's a good listener, myself <laughs> included. Okay. <laughs> I mean, seriously, um, we're more relational. Um, the research shows that where men and women are different, and we're mostly the same in terms of how we interact relationally, the feelings that we have, the hopes that we have, all that kind of stuff. But where we're different, we're really different. Um, Men and women have a real basic communication difference in interrupting, for example. When men interrupt, they do it to take control of a conversation, and that's why the language of business in a workplace traditionally has been very respectful. Uh, when women interrupt, we do it to participate in conversation, and it's an affirming experience for both women involved. But when a woman does that to her husband, like if he, he's telling her a thing and she's listening, but she's um, verbalizing over it, he's going to view that as something that feels like attack, and then he's going to get defensive. And that's actually very, very normal. And then the converse of that is when she's telling him something and he's you know, being respectful by not interrupting, not asking questions and not, you know, moaning, oh, mm, you know, or any of those sorts of things, you know, she may feel like there's something flat there. So, you know, and both of us, male and female, need to set our stupid phones down, make eye contact and really choose to be curious and engaged with the person we're with. Mm-hmm. That would help. Nina, when the relationship gets under stress, is there, uh, do couples start confiding in each other less? Yes, very much so. And stress, whether it's because the relationship is in stress or you've got a child that, you know, you've got something going on there or you have elder care, you know, wherever the stress is coming from, what happens is you emit cortisol, which is a hormone that um, can activate um, adrenaline and you're, um, you get the fight or flight or freeze response, right? But you're in a relationship. You're, there's no tiger for you to combat. So what happens is you lose executive function and we, wa- we turn away from the thing that we really need the most because if we'll just go get a hug or we'll touch the person that is agitated, you know, go give them a hug, the, the um, skin-to-skin contact actually releases serotonin, which takes cortisol and basically tells it to shut up. And so we need to, it, it's contrary to our nature 
But that's the thing that we need to go do to be supportive of each other versus going, oh, I don't want any part of you. You're scary looking right now. And one of the things people don't realize is that when people look angry, there's actually like 15 different emotions. Research out of the University of Houston shows this, that 15 different emotions are behind what an angry face looks like. Wow. And so we can't make assumptions on that. And we need to step into it bravely so that we can really connect with the person we're talking to. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's say uh, husband and wife, they head out, they both do hard, very hard, demanding, I'm slaying the dragon jobs every day. And they come home and they're tired and mm-hmm. they're exhausted. And they're just kind of trying to figure out how to get through the rest of the day and then start again tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's lousy. Um, you know, when we look at our lives, You have to make decisions about what's important. And, you know, regardless of, you know, what standard of living you currently have, we live at a higher rate than 95% of the world. And I think Americans are great at having too much of everything. Um, I'm I'm as guilty as most. I had too many shoes and too many books. Those are my things I need a 12-step program for. Mm -hmm. It's a hot mess with books, you know. But there's no reason for it. And and so if we're having employment that is high stress, you know, commute, all of, you know, and a lot of pressure to perform well, all those sorts of things, you know, maybe we should downsize our house so that we can be fully present with our kids you know, and help them with homework. Maybe we should not necessarily, you know, need the nice clothes and the brand new cars and the, you know, all that stuff. And and certainly there's a lot of people that have um, financial difficulties, but what's interesting, and I was reading, I can't remember where I read this a couple of weeks ago, but it was saying that it didn't matter what neighborhood you lived in, but there were as many people struggling financially in your upper class neighborhoods as there were in the lower class neighborhoods, that you know people are maxing out their credit cards and living in debt and all of that. And it's not necessary. It's gluttony mm-hmm. and we don't need it. You know, what do we need? Human beings need shelter. And that doesn't need to look like a you know, million-dollar condo. And we need social interaction and, of course, food and water and a purpose in life. But we don't need a lot of the things that the media will tell us we need. Mm-hmm. And, Nina, talk about how important it is to speak words of encouragement. Isn't that, That's a big deal, isn't it? Well, are you appreciated too much Oh, uh, maybe in everyone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, it's one of those things that... People just love, whenever you encourage anybody, it costs you nothing, right? Mm -hmm. And you've given them this little tiny gift-wrapped package, which they will open and reopen and reopen for maybe months or years to come. Yeah, and the neat thing is is that that warm thing that we just did for them is it was designed to have a positive warm fuzzy back on us too so that's super cool that we get that you know warm feeling as well um, from giving an affirmation to somebody but yeah we don't do that enough yeah we're, we're good at complaining no kidding nina let me take a little break uh nina rosner is my guest she's written a book called the respect Air: 40 days to a deeper connection with god and your husband how cool is that so after 90 seconds we'll be back with nina
Welcome back to the show. My guest is Nina Rosner. She's written a book called The Respect Air, 40 Days to a Deeper Connection with God and Your Husband. So let's talk about respect a little bit more, Nina, and let's uh, discuss fighting fair. How important is that for respect? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if there is such a thing as fighting and fair in the <laughs> same word, the sentence there, because um, fighting is always kind of unpleasant. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really healthy way to have dialogue when you have a difference of opinion or when somebody gets hurt in a relationship. And there's a lot of really unhealthy ways to do that, and they all involve disrespectful behavior, and I think we're probably all experts on that one. Um, well, probably the best thing, and you mentioned this earlier, you know, is listening. So when somebody brings you a concern or a problem that they have or a struggle, you know, we need to listen to that and then validate that person's experience. So let's say you about, you had a car accident or almost had a car accident on the way home, and you come in and you're you're rattled, and you say to your husband, you go, okay, so this happened, blah, blah, blah. and if he says to you, well, you know, you never look when you're pulling out, or you always you know pull away too quick, and I'm not okay. That's really not helpful. What is helpful is just, oh, gosh, that must have been scary for you, and tell me more about this, and and just listening and validating the person. And when we're with somebody, and let's say they've done something that's wrong, let's say we've done the wrong thing to something that's not wise or whatever, you still do all that. And here's why. When you start with that response, the, the person is able to unload the emotionality that they've got, and that lowers the level of cortisol in the brain. And then they're able to, in in a healthy relationship, they're able to hear something that's a little different because they've been heard, they've been comforted, they've talked about their feelings, they've been validated as a human. And then they can hear something that's a little different. Um, But if the relationship's really unhealthy, you you don't even approach them with something different in that moment. And you have to wait like a day, sometimes three or a week, depending on, the severity of the messed upness of the relationship. And and most people don't know that. And so when you try to do conflict, you know, they think, well, this is the conversation we're going to have and it's over. You know, we're going to solve this one tonight. And that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, these things are done in small baby steps. And um, the little things, the tiniest things uh, that are done in relationships are the ones that make up the trust. And if that isn't handled well, when you go to do something big, it's just not going to work. All right, Nina, let's say, let's go back to the scenario. Both both people are out working all day. So there's a lot of professional woman, women that can come home and feel a little bit of an edge regarding household responsibilities. Maybe you develop some resentments. Mm-hmm. There's not enough getting done. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about resentment. Yeah, that is lousy. It eats your soul. Um and it, you know, it comes down to two things. First of all, societally, women are better, more interested, care a lot more in housework. They care. They have a no offense to the men, but that's a thing for them. Um, men are not as overall. These are averages in social science. Okay, so you know, average on average. So not all people are like this, but in general, women care more about this stuff, and that's the way it's been. Historically, that's the way it is now. We're the ones on Pinterest. I mean, you look at the demographics of those websites that promote this kind of stuff. That's where that's where women are. So we have these standards. We know what other people are looking at, 
And then we got to go, okay, so how do we deal with this? And and there's a number of things. First of all, and this is going to sound really, really countercultural, but um, I personally recommend that women work part-time if they have kids. And here's why. If you've got children, they need your best. And even if you're married, your husband needs your best. And you have time and margin in your life so you're not stressed out. And you can do ministry, you can help your kid with their homework, you're around more. And historically, you're the one that's physiologically equipped to deal with those little kids in a different way than your husband is. So that's a thing. And and that's not a very popular thing to say. But I will tell you, I've been a career person um, for 30-some years. I got out of college, got my master's degree, started working full-time in human resources and doing Dale Carnegie training at night. And I absolutely loved it. I was working like a crazy person, and so was my husband. And he was traveling, and we traveled and did all these things. And then I had kids. And I, I dropped back to part-time, and we'd made my husband made a really good decision when we got married. We were going to live off of his income in case we had children. And when we did have kids, I worked part-time. I, sometimes I didn't work at all. And I had a job that I loved, and it was easy to do part-time. And I, I was able to use the training I had, but I was also able to be present for my kids. And I would not trade the relationship that I have with, and they're all grown now. My, old, my youngest is a senior in high school. But I wouldn't trade that for anything because you can't get that back. You, there's nothing. There's no presentation at work that is worth you know, your daughter's fifth grade, you know, art project or her science project or whatever it is, you know, those moments you can't get back. And we want to be close to our children when they're older. And so we got to make that investment when they're young. And that's how you do that, is you don't try to do it all, be it all, according to the culture. Yeah, it's a beautiful sentiment. But I know there's some people listening that say, well, then rent doesn't get paid and food doesn't get on the table if we don't both work. Yeah. And I know that's hard. And there's, the, you know, I would examine some of the choices that we make. You know, there's, you know, Dave Ramsey's program on getting out of debt um, and living beneath your means. You know, the culture is very strong. And we're on social media so much so that we're not even aware of the social pressure. We really believe that we absolutely have to have name brand this or that. And you can have name brand this or that, but maybe you get it from a used clothing store or Goodwill or, you know, something else. And the thing is, is there's always creative ways around that. But if you're completely exhausted, something has to go to get the margin to even be able to figure those things out. So not easy. Yeah. You know, talk about uh, building mutual respect if respect is not... Um, as strong as it once was, or maybe it's n- never was there. So how do you build mutual respect? That's so the big what, dare. Yeah, and here's the thing. You can't control somebody else's behavior. So the only person that you can control is yourself, and so you're going to set some boundaries for yourself, which means I'm like the rule that I would have for myself in an interaction is as soon as I start to feel emotional, I'm going to take a break. And so, And my husband and I went through a period of really difficult uh, time and you know we had we basically had to re-establish who we were as a couple, and we did that in the smalls. 
So we would attempt to have a conversation. And, and, and I've seen couples in, that were in worse shape than we were. That you couldn't even ask them, if you, or one couldn't ask the other, are you going to pick up so-and-so from school without causing a conflict? And so we had to put a stop to the cycle, which means somebody says something that's upsetting and the other person reacts to that. No. Somebody says something that's upsetting, the more mature person in the room needs to not react to that. And I'm going to take responsibility and say that person's going to be me. And I'm not going to point my finger and say, well, why don't they do that? You know, they should. Yeah, they should, but you can't make somebody else do it. And so what you do is you go, okay, I'm going to get upset. I'm not going to do that. And I'm and I say to the person, or we coach women to say, I'm I really love you, and I want this to go well, and I'm getting upset, so I'm gonna take a break, and I'll be right back. And you leave, you leave the conversation, because once you say the words that are hurtful, you cannot get them back. It's like squeezing toothpaste out of a tube; it doesn't go back in. Yeah. So somebody's got to start changing the cycle, and then that be, can become contagious, and. Then you have conversations about how you do conversation and set boundaries around that, and it it can heal a marriage. It takes a long time, but if you start small and you refuse to participate in the conflict in an aggressive, angry, emotional way, that's that's where you start. It's not easy, but it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe we just uh, have a couple of minutes left, so maybe we we can talk about God's definition of respect. Maybe we go right to the source. Yeah, and and he he views that, and there's you know a number of different translations you can look at, but reverence and awe and honor, um, and and people hear those words and they're like, well, he doesn't deserve that, or she's not worthy of that, and you know the Bible tells both men and women to respect their spouse. You know, I believe First Peter three seven tells husbands honor your wives. And, you know, he doesn't even want to hear prayer from you if you don't, you know, basically is what that verse is. That's a translation according to Nina, pretty loose there. But <laughs> the point is, is that, you know, we're to have reverence for God's creation, which means that we don't treat it badly. That we're people of honor ourselves and worthy of that treatment from others, but we have to act that way, which means that we're not people that are going to behave that way in a negative way. We're going to respect others because we are respectful people. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to treat God's creation as precious, regardless of how it behaves. Yeah. Can we ever figure out a way to just be less offended and or less defensive? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, we have courses on this stuff um, because it's not an easy process. But one of the things that helps with this is by, and this is going to sound really weird, but identifying your own feeling in that moment. What am I feeling? And wrap a word around it. It takes some of the oomph out of it. That's Mm. the research there. And then normalize it and say, you know, of course I would feel this way. I'm feeling like this person attacked me, so I'm defensive. I'm I'm embarrassed because it seems like they think this. Anybody would feel like that. So you normalize it. And then you talk to God about it. You're like, Lord, will you comfort me in this? And you start rubbing your arms, releasing some serotonin, comforting yourself. And you listen to him, and he'll, he'll remind you that he loves you and that you're precious to him, and he'll spend some time with you. And I, I used to put my hand up in conversations and say, hang on a second, and I'd walk through these steps with God, 
people, my, my family thinks I'm a little crazy anyway with that stuff. But well, maybe you are I, a little crazy. I, that could be true. But you know what? <laughs> we were watching it save marriages, so I'm good with that. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 So then you take responsibility for your part. And God, God's a gentleman. He will reveal that opportunity to you in a very yeah. gentle and sweet way. And Nina, then we do it. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a hey, delight talking to you. Me. Yeah. Nina Rosner has been my guest, and her book is called The Respect Dare, 40 Days to a Deeper Connection with God and Your Husband. We'll take a short break and be back with Hour 2.